So the, the right. cheaper money is, the more important the story that you tell is, and less important is the profitability of your enterprise. Is the latter, the case of the government, actually more wasteful than the kind of waste we've seen in the private sector as a result of extremely abundant capital availability? Well, because social media creates smaller and smaller ecosystems. Eventually, in its ideal form, social media creates an ecosystem of one that's perfectly controlling. Democrats like um, Elizabeth Warren have been trying to paint this as an antitrust issue. It's not an antitrust issue. It's nothing to do with antitrust. This is actually like a sort of... Um, what we have here is, is an economic system where every actor is incentivized to move towards a very specific point in space. Hi, hi. Welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today, we're speaking with Dimitri Kofinas, an insightful commentator, financial analyst, and the host of the Hidden Forces podcast, a really interesting show who's had guests like Doomberg on from last season. In this show, we discuss supply chains, government subsidies, institutional trust, social media, Marshall McLuhan, career, and innovation. It was a bit of a shorter show because Dimitri is a very busy man, but it was very insightful and Dimitri always speaks with a measured, accurate tone that I really admire, as well as putting on very great interviews himself. So I put this show out today, even though it's a bit shorter than you're probably used to. Let me know about the slightly different format. And as always, the best thing you can do to support the show is to let a friend know. I'm sure that many of you who are listening, you have friends who are interested in exactly the same topics, you have friends who'd like to listen to the show just as much as you would. And sharing with them not only helps me, but also, of course, helps them learn more about the world around them. Without further ado, enjoy the show with Dimitri Kofinas. So one of the biggest problems that I think we've been trying to tackle on this show is this, uh, this increasing global conflict and conflict over essentially trade and supply chains. So from the kind of highest level point of view, where do you see global trade going? Um, if you're asking me whether I see us becoming more interconnected globally versus moving towards having more resilient, national-oriented, almost you know mercantilist policies, I think the latter. Right. And... To put it in more concrete terms, we're basically facing off against China, we're facing off against uh, Russia, although obviously they're much smaller. And there was kind of an era where we forgot about economic policy as basically a geopolitical tool. And that era is over. We're back. We're, we're back in reality. And we're looking at that tool as being very much on the table now, right? Yes. I mean... Well, you're seeing it in on the Russian side with the use of natural gas, which was something that the Europeans entered into with the assumption that it was going to be a kind of free market type commercial relationship. And now that gas has been weaponized. So I think, um, you know, clearly under the Trump administration, we began to see more kind of open economic warfare with the Chinese. And I think there are reasons to expect that that will continue. And as I've talked about on the show before, maybe this is what you're hinting at, the the dollar, the dollar's central role, role in, international, in international trade and in international finance allows it to work as a kind of weapon so that when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates and contracts credit, the dollar goes up in value vis-a-vis -vis other currencies and a lot of commercial operations in outside countries that borrow in dollars now have a hard time paying that money back. And so you get a lot of these cascading contractions and bank runs and crises abroad, the higher the dollar goes. So it, there's no sort of roadmap for this, although we've seen, we've seen these kinds of things happen in the past. And I think we're going to see more of that going forward. Right. And with these increasing policies, 
what are they going to look like? What is a mercantilist trade policy going to look like from the United States, for example? Well, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but what I would say is that we're moving into a world where the United States simply does not have the luxury or the ability to operate as the global hegemon in the same way that it has up until recently. And so the commitment to upholding a global free trade system, much in the same way that the British did in the 19th century, falls down the ladder of priorities. And so you're going to see, and this is part and parcel of populism. Part of what populism is, is a reprioritization of government policy to benefit the popolo, the people. And the people are, of course, people that have the franchise. They have the ability to vote in these democratic societies. So I think you're just going to see more of that. You're going to see more kind of nationalist policies, quote, reshoring. You're going to see um, you're going to see fiscal policies, spending from the from the, the government purse to support particular industries that have the ability to lobby the government to build and 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 uh, build up and reshore manufacturing in the U.S. I don't know exactly how all of that is going to, to look or work. And I think also, especially in the U.S., you're going to see, but also in Europe because of the recent invasion of Ukraine, you're going to see more emphasis on national security and, you know, choosing sectors that also bolster that. And again, to the point about not knowing what the future is going to hold, we still don't know what this new national security architecture is going to look like and what and how governments are going to prioritize that and work together. So that's all coming together now. Right. I think a real critique of this is basically that if you try to uh, manipulate these policies or, or these outcomes via government policy, then you're going to get worse quality uh, products or more expensive products or both. Right. And where that tension really is, is that you want that strategic reserve, but you also want it to be the same quality. You want it to be uh, as reliable as it was before. But uh, do, do you see that as really being possible? Do you think we're going to get uh, at the very least like a similar quality and maybe Love. like only slightly higher prices? Or is it going to be how costly do you find this being? So I kind of lost you there when you were talking, but I think I, I got the, the gist of your question, which sounds like you are assuming that what I'm describing is nationalization of key industries. Is that what you're describing? Uh, not necessarily explicit nationalization, but tons of subsidies, uh, deals, contracts, and so on. Uh, it, it won't be as totalizing, but I think there will be some similar effect of Well, I mean, so for example, the United States subsidized the automobile industry in the 1950s by building international highway systems. So that is a that but no one would argue that that the um, Interstate Highway Act was a sorry, I didn't mean to say international. I meant to say interstate um, <laughs> interstate highway systems. No one would argue that that made the automobile industry less competitive. So I mm. think there are ways in which the government can invest in the economy and has invested in the economy. The, maybe the best example of all is the research that was funded in in partnership with the De Department of Defense, academia, and the and ultimately passed off to the private sector that led to the development of the suite of technologies that we now broadly call the internet. So there mm. are absolutely ways in which the government can be a constructive and has been a constructive force in economic development that does not lead to worse economic outcomes, but actually to much better ones. I mean, you referenced earlier that many of the industries that were going to be uh, benefiting were going to be ones that had the capacity to lobby. Do you think that there's a problem here where we're not necessarily uh, benefiting or creating the policies to help out the right people or the people who are going to be the most productive in terms of actually achieving those national security goals or those industrial policy goals? Well, in, in a in a in a democracy like ours, this is always a problem. Right. Whether you're, If your question is, is it going to become more of a problem? I don't know. You know, that's, that's tough to say, because I think to, to, to be able to answer that competently, I would have needed to actually 
be someone who has spent my lifetime trying to understand the history of of government spending let's say post post world war 2 because really pre world war 2 the 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 government or, or maybe pre you know great depression the government really had a minimal role in the economy so after that having a look at to see kind of what what are the estimates of the amount of money that was wasted um graft corruption etc so i i don't really know i think there are ways that we can do it and it's not necessarily true that it'll become a bigger problem it could become less of a problem i think my guess would be that that depends a lot on well i i was going to say it depends a lot on a a sort of communal integrated whole of government approach that has buy in from the american people but you're also probably talking about the need to have really good systems of oversight and a culture of oversight and i think those things take time so i really don't know right the framing i have for it is that you're basically putting up a mantle, but it's uncertain if someone will come and actually pick up the slack. Because, and I got a lot of this from Sam Oberia, in many cases when you create these markets, someone does come in and someone does does, uh, does take advantage of it. Elon Musk is a great example. Uh, and you see examples throughout history. Certainly many DARPA-funded projects have led to, like you said, uh, the modern uh, the modern hardware industry, the modern uh, internet, right? It's quite a wonderful and beautiful thing. But the difference there is really whether someone actually comes in and, uh, and fulfills that promise, whereas when you have, when you're creating these markets, right? When you're creating essentially these artificial markets, you don't know if, if no one comes and uh, fills in that gap, then well, we can we can see we can see pretty transparently uh, what has happened in those cases as well. Basically, nothing. And so that ability to I'm generate not sure. what 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 would you say that though? When you say that in those cases, we've seen what's happened. Basically, nothing. What's can you give me an example of what you mean? Uh, I think a very good example is a lot of these uh, kind of ESG or energy ventures that you have now, right? Or I guess they're they're kind of in the way now, fortunately. But in many cases, you have, and these are just administered in a very you know, haphazard way in ESG in particular, where they won't list Tesla, but they'll list like ExxonMobil, right? So you have these situations where you're throwing money at basically this uh this very vague, very general target of uh, of uh, re- reducing carbon emissions, and in the, in the long term strategy, it's actually less effective than say. And this is actually ironic because the ESG version was much more of a corporate or nonprofit exactly. uh, backed space, and uh, Tesla, what they were taking advantage of, was actually much more kind of intentional and much more uh, of a government policy. And you see that whenever you have these kind of uh, when you have these kind of asymmetric benefits, either you get someone who shows up, who takes advantage of the benefits, and maybe they wouldn't have been able to uh, create the same kind of company, the same kind of structure without those benefits. But you also see situations where uh, no one picks it up, or even worse, it's kind of directly handed to legacy players, and then you don't really get many returns out of it at all. Yeah, so just to separate, I agree that ESG is is not a good example for government, but that in cases where governments provide subsidies like solar like uh what is the term for if you have an EV car um solar credits or something not solar credits, some kind of credits, EV credits when you buy a Tesla, etc. that that Yeah, I think in Canada ins- it's called like the clean energy rebate. Should be something yeah, similar. So you, yeah, so you incentivize people, you subsidize demand. And yes. you subsidize demand with the hope that y- you will eventually create a market that can be self-sustaining. The same thing it happens, for example, in venture, where you have venture backers subsidizing demand for Uber um, customers using Uber cars with the hope that eventually the dynamics of the market will displace that. So. Yeah, and all of that can le- leads to misallocation. Does it lead to more misallocation? I mean, it's very interesting to actually consider this, which is that do do credits like the kind that we're describing, just in this specific example, because it's such a good analogy to what we saw in the case of Uber and other startups like Uber, where billions of dollars of early stage funding are used to literally subsidize 
the early customers, to give them access to the product at prices that they would otherwise be unwilling to purchase the services for. Hmm. And so one, one has to wonder, is the latter, the case of the government, actually more wasteful than the kind of waste we've seen in the private sector as a result of extremely abundant capital availability, very, very low risk rates, and the inability of investors to actually generate meaningful profits and returns of the, of the sort that they need in by taking reasonable amounts of risk. So, you know, it, it's it's interesting to consider that. We might be at a stage in in economic in the sort of disparity of our uh, economic system and the economic outcomes that we have and the levels of debt which have have are part and parcel of why we have such low interest rates where actually the government needs to come in and restructure somehow some fundamental aspects about how this economy works in order to get us out of this you know for lack of a better word or or not lack of a better word but for lack of a complete picture debt trap that we've fallen ourselves into right I, I think there's something very important there which is that as your actually as your leverage increases right you become more and more kind of uh not even state-like but worse than that right you become more and more uh, ignorant to the price signal basically as your leverage increases right because either either what what's happening is that things are just you're just riding the market up or if there's tough times and it's just it's just a default, right? I, I think that that's that's very interesting and it's like very epitomatic of what's happening in crypto or what happened in crypto, right? You have all of these just bankruptcies and you have all of these investors who I don't think fully understood what they were doing and then suddenly they're down they're down a ton of money because there's been this kind of basically. Uh, this kind of subsidizing, yeah, you can put it in that way of uh, of some kind of product, even if that product, well, there's nothing there in the end. Yeah, I, yeah, I think. That, I mean, basically, when money is free, go ahead, go ahead. That has a material. That has a no. When when you when you when you when money is free and easy to source, it has a material impact on the types of not only just business practices, but also on the types of businesses that get funding and the types of entrepreneurs who become successful. So the, the right. cheaper money is, the more important the story that you tell is, and less important is the profitability of your enterprise. Because what your capacity to tell a good story begins to displace your capacity to generate profits from the business because a great story gets you more funding and funding gets you money. Yes, this is very important. I think this naturally dovetails with another big topic that you cover, which is basically institutional trust. Right. So the trust that people have for things like the government or like media or uh, or the military, even the courts. Right. All of these things seem to be on a decline. And I know you've talked about this before, but can you just give a quick summary of like, why is that? Why do are we seeing a decline in trust? Yes. Well, it's a great question that, you know, I I, I am constantly working through. It's not something that. I can sort of speak to definitively, nor do I think anyone can. Um, as you know, I use my podcast to help piece together puzzles like this. And one of the most informative interviews I had on the subject was with David Shore, who was right. referred to as the kind of Nate Silver of the Obama campaign's 2012 staff. And he's a kind of data sleuth. And we had a great conversation about this. And 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 it it was a big piece of the puzzle for me. Which is that I think we're so let me actually step back and think about this a bit because that conversation was about the disparity between or the difference between Democrats and Republicans. And I think one of the things that I've also bought into this idea that Republicans are less trusting than Democrats and why that is exactly the case. Um, it's a different exploration, but why? Why is there more distrust today? Um, I mean, I, I, look, if I had to guess, again, this is it's 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 tough being on this side of the microphone because then I feel like I need to really give more authoritative answers. But I, if I, if you put a gun to my head, what I would say is that institutional failure over the last several decades 
really since at some point in uh, because, you know, in the early 90s, after the end of the Cold War, there was distrust. You had the kind of I mean, if you look at when Alex Jones got his start, it was on local access television in the early 90s covering mm. conspiracies about black helicopters and German soldiers being sent by the United Nations into Texas. So you had the kind of New World Order speech of uh, that uh, Bush Sr. gave after the, the end of the Cold War in a state of the Union where you put forward this vision. And, of course, you had a lot of people that thought this was part of some New World conspiracy thing to take over the world. And you, so you always have people that distrust. But I think that if my best sense of this is that after 2001, after the 9-11 attacks, and the botched invasion of Iraq or the botched uh, occupation of Iraq and then the 2008 crisis, those two periods, it, um, the failed in, the failed occupation and the 2008 crisis and the way in which it was dealt with and the way in which so many people were able to recognize that the rules were changed to favor some people over others, those two events, I think, caused a huge knock against the the trust in American institutions, both domestically and abroad. Though I would say that there was a there was a greater distrust of American foreign policy and of America globally as a result of all the you know foreign covert and non covert actions that the United States took during the co course of the Cold War that a lot of foreigners were more attuned to in Western countries, but. I, those that's what i would say i would say it was it's been the failure of our institutions and the manifest hypocrisy stuff like you know john Kerry preaching on climate change and taking private jets everywhere that kind of stuff uh, so there's that there's also the disparity in wealth and income i think that it's hard for people to trust when they feel increasingly uh increasingly separated from the lives of other people. So how, is it, it's probably a lot easier to trust your neighbor in your own neighborhood than to trust someone who lives in a mansion, you know, a couple cities away. And I think that that's also become true. People, um, people feel that level of disparity. I also think that social media plays a role here as well. Like this is the, the omniscient intelligence that is at work in the world. That's growing increasingly intelligent and driving people towards particular outcomes which don't necessarily correlate or don't don't necessarily align with the interests of a mature democratic republic yes i think i think what you you're catching on to that there is that these things are these things are uh, feed are feedback loops Right, that that essentially you have this very real situation where there's distrust over policies that did happen. Right, two thousand eight did happen. The Iraq War did happen. The Soviet era uh, escapades. They all, uh, many of them, many of the things that were claimed about that, they actually did happen. Right, and so you have these situations where there is a sense of distrust a righteous sense of distrust or like a correct sense of distrust in these scenarios, but you also have the ability to amplify that. So when you have social media, something that I often say about things on social media is that they either go to zero or 100, right? There's nothing in between. And so if you have just a bit of distrust and you're feeding that into a social system where people can talk about that distrust, they can add in more examples, they can create basically a story around anything then it's very hard to keep that at, I think, a mature level as you have, right? As you've been answering these questions, you've been considering the pros and the cons, you've been very clear about how certain you are about various decisions you're coming to. I think as soon as you plug in your system of morality to something that's social, that becomes impossible, right? Everything becomes either you're all in or you're, or you're all out, and it's just it's just kind of all consuming in that way. Do you see the same thing? Um, can you, can you actually, could you summarize that again for me? Right. So social media lets you create a totalizing narrative and that totalizing narrative 
will outcompete the non-totalizing narratives around any topic. Well, I think that, I don't know, maybe I'm misunderstanding you, but I feel like the opposite's the case. Really? Because, well, because social media creates smaller and smaller ecosystems. Eventually, in its ideal form, social media creates an ecosystem of one that's perfectly controlling so that each individual inside of the machine, the billions of people, each of them um, loses complete control of his or her decision-making process so that everything is is uh, guides them to very unique particular outcomes that are different, distinct, and some even my, you know, my, my crossable, my, my microscopic way from someone else's. Does that make sense? Yeah, this actually gets to a very big debate that I've kind of mulled over many, many times. And this is interesting. Uh, yeah, I do want to spend some time on this, actually, because the the big debate is kind of like fracturing versus clumping, right? So one idea is that social media is fracturing, it's creating all of these asymmetric realities, it's making people uh, much more disconnected from themselves, from their friends, from their neighbors, and so on. And there is basically this this like Truman Show for everyone, right? Uh, th- that might be a bit extreme. That might be a bit of a character, but it's the general. It's the general story. No, I think that's told. actually correct. Yeah, and uh, the other way is that essentially this is creating like social waves, right? It's creating a new almost f- social physics where people hop on to various bandwagons, various political trends, various uh, communities and and message boards and theories and so on, and they all and they kind of get consumed by that 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 pattern of behavior, that kind of group mentality, that is something that is exerting a much stronger force on people because of social media. And that this isn't necessarily a question of them all being isolated from each other. It might be better, for example, if all of the, if all of the QAnon people were isolated from each other, right? It it would have been, uh, there probably would not have been uh, like January 6th, for example, if, if those people had never kind of met each other, right? But you have a lot of these situations where it's because I do think I do think you're getting this like splitting into into smaller communities. But those communities are not quite there. They might be like fractionally small. Right. But they're not numerically small. They still have they still have well enough people. They still have like thousands, tens of thousands of people far well enough to have basically this kind of uh, this kind of mob mentality. Right. Um, yeah, I guess that's true. I, I mean, but, in this, if, if, you, if what you're saying is that the globs of people who find community on social media are large enough to, let's say, attack someone on Twitter, I think that's true, or to short a company's stock or vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that this this is also a function of the power of scale that comes with technology right the ability to amplify yeah so yeah i agree with that yeah so like just for the audience if you have one percent of people or not even one percent if you have one percent of one percent so 0.01 percent of people who are uh who are believing in some kind of extreme ideology if you have villages of hundreds or thousands of people right you're, you're only going to have one one at most two people by chance in in the same place who are going to be able to interact with each other, who are going to be able to egg each other on, so on and so forth. Sure. All of that changes when you have a global internet. All those people can now cluster together, they can find each other, and the algorithms help them find each other, right? So, so suddenly you have these fractionally small uh, ideologies or fractionally small factions, but they become numerically large just because you have hyperconnectivity. I think that's the story that's happening here. Well, it would it you know you you also are speaking to you're channeling the words of a fellow Canadian. I think you you suggested that you're in Canada, right? Marshall yes. McLuhan, the Global Village. Mm, yes, and it's often a very uh, misunderstood term because, like the Global Village, everyone a lot of people think this is something that's like a positive, right? But it's actually kind of uh, well, like everything, it's almost panopticonish, it, right? Well, it's, like it's, everything, it's got. Pros and cons. Mm. 
I mean, what do you think of that kind of dynamic, right? Do you, do you think the McLuhan narrative is about right? What I would say is that we have our systems of government that exist in the world today were not built to cope with and deal with the kind of world that we live in, the technologies that exist today, as a perfect example. So we have these national systems of governance, and we live in an increasingly international, interconnected world. So it's not surprising that you see a lot of these systems coming under stress, because they weren't built for this kind of a world that we live in. The same is true as our, of our e- academic institutions. They were built for a kind of world, a more bureaucratic world, a world of, of uh, top-down integrated corporations or government bureaucracies. So like all of these things need to be reformed. I, I do think it's interesting to consider whether societies, it's, it's weird, you know, whenever I go to th- sort of contemplate something, I then always think, well, but is that really true? I mean, I look back in time, we've had revolutions, we always had re- revolutions. And despite the rapid change in the world today, we haven't seen a revolution in you know, Europe or the US. But by, where I was basically going with this was I was thinking out loud about whether or not the rapidity of change today is putting more stress on our systems of government than we had 500 years ago when the life of my grandchild would have been roughly similar to my own life. So Hmm. I don't know, but it's an interesting thing to consider. One parallel or historical connection that I've found compelling is that it's the same deal, but the staging grounds are different, right? So before you would essentially raise armies by going to these lands and essentially drafting people, right? Pointing a gun at them and saying, uh, well, usually we try we try a bit uh, more kindly than that, but basically raising armies via going by village by village and not so subtly forcing people to, to uh, join the army. Uh, whereas nowadays, we still have the same social norms against that, except in, in very, very extreme circumstances. But what you don't have is you don't have the parallel for the digital staging ground. Right. So all of these institutions, you can think of you can think of these companies kind of as little little fiefdoms. Right. You can go around, you can go to all of these companies and basically recruit them for an ideological fight. And that ideological fight, uh, it, it certainly is not as bloody and it's much preferable. Like I, I, I'd much rather be basically I, I'd much rather be kind of like have hit pieces written about me than, you know, literally killed. Right. That choice isn't hard to make for me, but that you do see some of these parallels uh, where you see essentially like. Uh, you see people being recruited uh, not so not so kindly into basically political movements or into ideological movements. Um, so just to clarify, what you're saying is that through social media, people get recruited into ideological movements? Uh, not just that, but in uh, it's not as much something that is happening on the personal level, although I'm sure there's some of that, but something that's happening in the institutional level, right? So the historical analog is something like this. You, you run a small fiefdom, right? You're, you're like the king or like some kind of ruler, the lord, I guess that's better, of a small, of a small region. And what happens is that the king shows up and says, we're recruiting for a war, uh, bring this many people. And you have to bring that many people or you're kind of screwed, right? You will, you will get invaded and occupied and probably killed. Now, the parallel of that is not necessarily that the government is going around forcing all of these institutions to send people into the military. No, that's not what's happening, is that you have basically representatives of some kind of ideology or some kind of movement. They go to an organization and say, like, you have to make these types of statements, hire these types of bureaucracies. Right. And they're kind of uh, they're deputized in that way. And you see and of course, whenever you're drawing historical parallels, you have to be dangerous and you have to be aware of overfitting. You have to be aware of oversimplifying things. But I do think this is illustrative of where like, quote unquote, combat or like conflict is happening today between basically different ideologies, different movements that would have been the types to start a civil war, say, uh, 100 or 200 years ago.
Sure. I mean, I guess. Uh, not sure if I follow entirely, but I kind of lost you, I think. Yeah, okay. I, I'm just thinking about how to how to rephrase this, and for, perhaps it might be a little bit better to take a bit of a detour now, because, of course, in order to get a good picture of the internet, we have to be able to ob actually observe the internet. And what you're increasingly seeing is a type of fracturing, right? You're seeing a fracturing both on the on the global level. Uh, of course, we've had this with China for uh, many years at this point, banning many uh, Western social media services and apps and so on. But you also have this increasingly in the local level, right, with all of those social media apps, even in uh, freer societies like the United States or like Canada, becoming more strict and more, uh, uh, let's say, more uh, heavy handed in terms of how they're going to moderate content. So where do you see the kind of trend? That's a good way to kind of pick this up and start with a more simple question. Where do you see the kind of trend to, of this going? Is there going to be more of a backlash to uh, to various policies that these companies have? Are they going to kind of liberalize in the lower L sense, right? Or is there going to be an increasing uh, moderation and increasing strictness? When you say these companies' strictness, do you mean like, for example, censorship on the internet? Yeah, Facebook, Twitter, or so on. Yeah, YouTube. so I think that entirely depends on us and whether people get at it, it get active and you know engage in the kind of uh, dynamic public policy making process that leads to legislative initiatives, which which can actually change things like this. So we had. Yeah, so it depends on the legislature. It right, depends so, on. It depends right. on the laws. Okay, interesting. Exactly. So we it's can, definitely not so going to come if from we corporate are, America doing it on its own, you know. Right. Right. So if we just leave things, leave things be. What's going to happen? What's most likely to happen? Well, companies will seek to maximize profits and to create as many moats as possible to prevent competitors from intervening on their businesses. So I just think, and and in this case. I think this actually raises a good point, which is I think that Democrats like um, Elizabeth Warren have been trying to paint this as an antitrust issue. It's not an antitrust issue. It's nothing to do with antitrust. This is actually like a sort of um, what we have here is is an economic system where every actor is incentivized to move towards a very specific point in space, which is the acquisition and use of data in order to steer people towards the commercial outcomes that they seek. So the business model is what has a competitive advantage here. The business model, the ad model of, of, of um, selling attention. And that needs to be fundamentally disrupted from a government's point of view, because it, it, it's an, it's a naturally it's, I don't even know what the term is. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a specific, vortex, right? it's an attractor. A specific well, there's, yeah, but there's a specific term in game. It's a dominant strategy. So it's something that right. everyone is yes. engaged in, and it's not something that only one company is engaged in because it has a monopoly over the space. Right. And just for the audience, a dominant strategy is something that basically wins unconditionally, right? So if uh, if you have, say, uh, an online company and you, and you have, say, a company in North America, right, you have a company in, in the United States, they're going to want to get, gather as much data they're going to want to uh, scale scale the platform, sell ads, and so on. And you can have wildly different circumstances. You can have, say, uh, the same company in uh, in Europe or in much more different countries, even like Japan, right? And they'll do the same thing, right? So, so in any situation, in any situation, this is going to happen. So you can't just roll the dice and expect companies to do something different. No, actually, this is going to be the thing that they end up doing every single time. Sure. Yeah. And so what kind of legislation do you think should be passed? Well, that I don't know. I mean, there are people that are working on this. I know. Well, I don't know if, if uh, Matt Stoller is the right person to, to to bring up because Matt, again, is so focused on <laughs> monopoly. But uh, there are people that work on this court kind of issue. I'm now the name of a, of a woman who works um, on this issue, like around Facebook and these social media platforms escapes me 
But uh, there are people that work on this issue. I think they 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 would probably be better suited to answer it than I am. But right, I definitely think right. something needs to be done. And you talked about earlier this kind of democratic, this public democratic process. So you still have, I assume that you still have some a lot of faith in this. Yes, I mean, as as funny as it might sound, you know, I know that I might seem like a pessimist somehow that I might come across that way, but that's. You know, maybe it's just more because I naturally highlight the things that are wrong. But I, I do believe that we, you know, if you look back over history, things have a tendency in many instances of working out just because one individual can't answer the question of what the right path is. I think a lot of times, so long as you have a complex dynamic system of human beings working on problems or being incentivized to work on a problem, solutions emerge. People are really smart and change builds on on itself. So there are things that will be invented. I mean, you can just look back. I don't know. I'm just, I mean, I don't know. I don't know about a public policy problem, but just in terms of uh, changes to the world we live in today, go back just 10 years. 10 Hmm, years. I mean, right. Like, uh, so many things are different now than they were then. And if you go back 20, it's like unrecognizable. You know, so uh, we have no idea what kind of uh, solutions will exist in the future. In fact, I think we're capable of solving most of our problems in in due time. What what concerns me is the problems that we create through our solutions, and do those right. problems end up becoming greater than the solutions that that you know we we reach for? This is something that I wanted to ask about. I'm not sure how confident you are in answering. But I think many young people now are much more even than before have a kind of focus on policy and a focus on because just the role of government is like like you said before, we, we kind of woke up from this period where you just had a lot of things taken for granted. Right. So a lot of people are looking around and they're they're saying like, OK, this is this is crucially important. I want to find my kind of direction. I want to find where I'm going. I want to find what I'm doing with this. Uh, how did you kind of come to what you're doing, and do you have any advice for those people? How to sort of find your way through life to find the things that that you really want to do in your life is that the yes. question? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, in some ways, it's kind of like the obvious thing that everyone always says, which is, you know, follow your heart. Um, I think you want to experiment. You always want to throw yourself into new things. Don't be afraid to challenge yourself. Don't be afraid to fail again, like a very common saying, but it's so true. And to not compromise, you know, I I really think that so many of the, so much suffering that happens in a person's life is because they compromised well, or, 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 or better, better to say they compromised too soon. Like just sometimes you need to compromise. For example, uh, you end up, uh, let's say, a parent, either earlier than you expected or you intended or just earlier than would have been ideal, even if you intended it. And at this point, you may not be able to chase certain dreams at the moment. You need to focus on doing other things in order to minimize the risk to your income or something else because you've got to take care of this child. So I think y- y- you you want to really... You want to, you want to figure out what matters most to you, you know, and, and, and the things that matter most to you, you don't want to compromise on those things because ultimately you will look back with regret and you don't want to be in that situation as you get older. You want to be in a place where you can look back over your life and say, you know, I, I made the right choices for me at the time with the information that I had. Yes. And I think what's very important to that is basically getting an understanding of the world, right? Learning more, uh, figuring out, finding people who you trust, who you can work with, or who you can, uh, you can be informed by. And that's only gotten harder. Uh, so besides the Hidden Forces podcast, which is excellent, right? Uh, how, else do you, how else do you suggest going about finding those things out? Well, that's a personal journey for everyone. You know, like it just means 
Let's see. Like if I look at my own life, I mean, I, I'll give you a great story about something that I did just to kind of speak to this point. I, um, when I was diagnosed with a brain tumor in the summer of 2009, six months later, I quit a job that I was, that I had a really great job. You know, I was a manager in a very small, recently created department in a major, uh, cable MSO and multi-service operator. And I had direct access to the COO who I wrote a, a, a newsletter for every month and to the, to the chief engineer of the company who had actually hired me. So I had really this incredible situation, but I was so unhappy because it wasn't for me. I mean, I, I, I wanted it to be for me because it was such a great opportunity. And it's kind of like someone gives you a Ferrari and you really want to love this car because it's such a great car and you see all these other people who have it, who love it, but it's just not right for you. And, and maybe what's right for you is like a Volkswagen. And this is really true. I mean, it could be a Volkswagen that you really, really lust after. There's something about the Jetta that you really love and you want that car. You're, but you're kind of you're kind of in this place of like, well, but this is what I'm supposed to like. This is what everyone else likes. It costs more. It's this and that, but it's not right for me. And so that was kind of the situation I was in. I had this great job that paid me really well. I had everything that I wanted, everything that I could want or that someone else might want, but it wasn't what I wanted. And so I quit six months later and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And even though I quit, in other words, even though, even though I had the courage to quit something that wasn't right for me, I immediately started studying for my LSATs because I was so anxious to be without a job and to be without a direction that I had to find something. So I clung to this entrance exam for law school like a, like a, like a piece of plywood in the middle of an ocean rather than just let go and continue to sort of bob up and down and, be, and, and, and allow myself that freedom to not be afraid that I'm going to drown. Because that's how I'm going to ultimately find what I want to do. But instead, I clung to this LSAT until about May of 2010, when I was about two weeks away from the exam. And I started freaking out because I couldn't actually, I was scoring really well up until that point on these mock exams. And then I just started failing these exams that I was doing. I couldn't, I couldn't do the questions. It's really wild, actually. And I was sitting in my therapist's office and I was telling him about this. You know, because I was, I was like, I'm going to fail. I'm not going to be able to do this. And then what happens? And, you know, he more or less kind of pointed out to me, well, maybe this isn't for you. And this has always been the case for me. Like my subconscious sabotages my conscious mind's attempts to misdirect my life. So, you know, you should really just kind of work on being in tune with who you are and what you want. And anyway, eventually, I, I, I despite my best intentions to sabotage myself, I um I found the, the thing that I wanted to do with my life because the moment I got behind a microphone, I just knew that this was for me. You know, so that's kind of what I would say to people. Look for the things that feel natural, that speak to your heart, that when you do them, you want to do more of them and you don't even think about the money. That's like a that's a real signal that it's for you. Yeah, that's incredibly heartwarming. I, I think I, I really feel that because you know, like all of these, a lot of these situations that I've been in working software or working in so many environments, it's been like, okay, here's a script that's worked for many other people. And that's good. I, I'm glad that that script has worked for many other people. But I, I start playing it and it's like, man, I am so miscast for this. This makes no sense, right? I'm not, I'm not making any progress with what I'm doing. I feel absolutely miserable about it and you know like i don't know how you guys enjoy this you know and it's just very the amount of disparity and the amount of disconnection the amount of uh the amount of disenchantment that you can have from something that someone else really enjoys and values i think that almost everyone underestimates that it's, so I think incre it's, it's absolutely incredible my wife, her part of a core part of her job is working through and with entrepreneurs and founders to figure out what's wrong with their business, what they're not doing right, what could be done better, where their skills are being misallocated. I mean, she loves it. 
she loves it. She loves getting in the weeds and understanding the systems and the processes. And I look at that whole process and it's, you know, it's like, it's like, I don't, you know, it's like hieroglyph hieroglyphics. You know, I, I don't, I don't find it interesting at all. I find it boring though. I find it fascinating to listen to her talk about it because her passion comes through. And that's the other thing that's also true, which is that people who may not have any interest in doing what you do with your life may still really, and often will really enjoy hearing you talk about it if you're passionate about it. So that's right. kind of another way of knowing if, if you're on the right path, which is when you tell people about your work or the thing that you're interested in, do those people who don't aren't interested in that thing, do they find it really interesting? You know, that's mm. another that's another way to, to know. Yeah, I was actually talking to my childhood friend about the 1906 Foreign Dredge Act, and I was talking about it for like 40 minutes. And yeah, I don't think it's just I mean, part of it is just having a connection and having a familiarity with someone. But also, I, I think that's I think that's very true. I think that you can have these types of conversations, these kind of policy conversations, as long as there's a sincerity about it and there's a sense of even if you even if I am not taking away something, if I'm listening to someone, even if I'm not kind of like taking away something, right? I'm not going to understand something like someone recently was talking to me about basically uh, about basically modern art and I'm like okay I don't understand anything about modern art or even art in general but having this interpretation of this person trying very genuinely and very authentically trying to go and say like okay here is my interest here is why where this interest comes from here is what I plan to be doing. Like, I'm just invested. I'm not necessarily invested in having that for myself. I'm invested in them, right? Sure, exactly. Yeah, that's... Man, I'm just taking some time to think about this now because, right, I think this is a very important thing to hear. I think it's very important, especially for my audience. My audience, there's a lot of uh, young people, there's a lot of tech people, and I think they have they have some similar experiences to mine, for sure, and similar experiences to yours, I think it's just a very important thing to consider. And I'm just, I'm just working through that uh, right now. What's, what's very tricky is that we, we try to think of ourselves as like a continuous thing, right? The preferences I have today are the same as the preferences I have a year ago and so on and so forth. That's the kind of narrative we tell ourselves, but that's not, that's not really true, Right. Like this is the real revealed preference stuff, right? In economics, it's like comedically untrue, but uh, <laughs> but you have a lot of these situations where you're very apt at lying to yourself. Uh, do you, do you have any tips on kind of seeing through that? On basically taking the narratives that maybe you tell yourself and breaking out of them? Yeah, I'll give you a good example. Actually, um, uh, a listener sent me an email yesterday. Ask, telling me, sort of giving me his perspective on um, the whole China-U.S. sort of dynamic. And what I do think is a kind of drumbeat for conflict with China in the U.S., there's a lot of, you know, kind of factors that are driving people towards a default position of wanting to engage more aggressively with China. And you know, I often think about, and he's Chinese American, so he grew up in China, but he lives here, and and he has an interesting sort of perspective. And I, I often think about that, which is how do I, you know, how do I avoid getting caught in this trap where I'm just kind of reinforcing my own biases and finding guests who reinforce this view that we need to confront quote China, confront China, whatever. You, and again, this is a very broad way of putting it, and invest in you know, resiliency and sort of maybe support Taiwan. And this, I'm just channeling a recent interview that I did with Elbridge Colby. Um, but yeah, I you listened know, to that. It was great. Yeah. All my listeners, you should listen to it too. Yeah. Yeah. Go but, on. Um, you can't be afraid to uh, speak with people who will challenge that. And so like, you know, that 
that that email from my listener reinforced something, which is something that I have wanted to do, which is to bring someone on who has a different perspective. And in point of fact, Elbridge Colby had done had participated in an intelligence squared mock debate where he and, and another person were on one side of the debate and were who were in favor of the motion that um, we need to support Taiwan in the event of an invasion or in the event that the Chinese escalate maybe by cutting off access through the Taiwan Strait, et cetera, versus the other side, which was taking the opposite point of view. And actually someone on the other side was very articulate. And I have I mean to I mean to reach out to him to have him on the show. So I think it's a long way of saying that you should seek out people who competently um, take the other position or who competently explore an alternative hypothesis that runs counter to yours. It's, it's kind of like uh, the different, it's kind of like being an athlete and constantly seeking out people who are really good or better than you so that you can compete against them and really figure out like what, you know, what, what's working, what's not working, and be brutally honest about that. So, you know, for in this particular case, in the case of US-China, you know, I really, and I kind of made this point in the interview, like, uh, or in the, uh, both in the interview and in the intro, which was, how do we know that we're not being paranoid? It's totally possible. I mean, you would right. totally expect a level of paranoia, and that's a really dangerous thing. And I think about that quite a bit. So, you know, try to keep your identity separate from your positions so that it's easy to change because it's very hard for people to change their identity, but it's very easy to change your opinion about something as long as that opinion isn't attached to your identity. Right. And finally, last question of the show. This is always the last question of the show. Uh, what is something in the world that has too much chaos and needs more order and something that has too much order and needs more chaos? Um, that's an interesting question. Never heard anyone ask that like that. Um, well, you, you have know, to have both, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I do think there's too much chaos in our public, our public conversation. You know, we talked about social media. I think there's way too much chaos there. Really, we need to have more order, but Again, I, I don't mean to suggest by having more order, we need to cancel more people, but there's too much disorder in our public conversation. In terms of where we need less order, hmm. Give me a second. I just have to think about that. I've never thought about that before. Oh, well, I got I got one for you, man. I got one for you. Perfect. In our um in in interest rate policy. In the in in the cost of capital, we've had too much order. There's been too much predictability in terms of firms' ability to source capital at 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 particular rates of interest. And this is something I've talked about for a long time. So, the um, the consistency and predictability of of people's ability to to source cheap capital has led to excessive amounts of risk taking and a lack of resiliency in capital markets. So. That's another way of saying that we need to see more volatility in capital markets. I think we're going to see that. But, what <laughs> I, but I mean, we need to see more sustained levels of volatility over time so that we don't go through this because we've been through this long period of very low volatility and that's going to have consequences. Right. This is the kind of Nassim Nicholas Taleb anti-fragile case, right? Exactly. You need to stress test yep. these things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, it's been great having you on. It's been It's been really quite moving, I think. And... Yeah, I'm sure everyone will be uh, will be very glad to listen. Thank you very much, Brian. It was my pleasure. That was our show with Dimitri Kofinis. As I mentioned at the top of the show, if you liked it, the best thing you can do is to share a friend. Let a friend know, either in person or online, and just direct them to the show. Hopefully you know someone who would enjoy exactly the same things we're talking about. Hopefully you're not alone, right? And we can all both help the show and also help each other learn more. As well, I really appreciate insightful criticism, raising new points, disagreement, especially if it's put together very thoroughly, and suggestions of new guests. All of those things you can put in the comments, particularly on the Substack post, or as a review, particularly on Apple Podcasts, which 
most podcasters or people who are booking others on the, onto those podcast shows, they're most paying attention to those Apple podcast reviews. So those would help the most. In any case, subscribe and stay tuned for another great episode next week.